know the love of Christ, Ephesians 3.19. To know the love of Christ that surpasseth knowledge is one of the things that the Apostle Paul prays for for the Christians in Ephesus. It's something that we should strive for as well. That is why this podcast is called To Know the Love of Christ. Each episode, we will study scripture in its context, but also dive deep to find the love of Christ, a love so fervent, so honest, and so faithful that it's the very essence of his being. We invite you to know the love of Christ. Welcome back to To Know the Love of Christ. I'm Dee. I'm Stephanie. I'm Brittany. If you remember, in our last episode, we started chapter 2 in Ephesians, uh, verses 1 through 10, and we discussed the darkness and death of sin, and we contrasted it to God being rich in mercy. We talked about how we are saved by grace, and we went into much detail and discussion about that, and about the rest of that verse that says we are saved by grace through faith. And we had a nice, interesting discussion (laughs) about whether or not faith is a work. Um, This week, Stephanie's going to lead our conversation, and we're going to continue on in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Yes, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize ahead of time. I just got back from church camp, and so my voice is a little wonky, so bear with me. If it sounds very irritating or more irritating than it already does, because um, I do kind of sound like I'm not a woman and this is a ladies <laughs> podcast. So that being said, let's get started. In the rest of chapter two, we see a continuation um, that we had from the first part of the chapter with that contrast between life before conversion and then our life inside of Christ. And I think this section of 11 through 22 emphasizes the contrast in the relationship aspect. Now, Paul knew the Christians in Ephesus very personally. We talked about that in the first episode. He'd stayed with them for over two years. And um, even after he left, we can read in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, where he called the the Ephesian elders to him in Miletus. And he speaks with them, and he kind of gives a farewell address, if you will, saying he won't see him again in this life. And then in verses 36 through 38, we can see the closeness of these brethren. They cry and they embrace him and kiss him. And it talks about how sorrowful they were at the thought of not seeing him again. So Paul has a very good relationship with this congregation. So when we delve into this section, we can see um, that he kind of builds off of that rapport that he had with the Christians. So in verses 11 through 12, can you read that for us, Brittany? Sure. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Twice in those two verses, he tells Paul tells the Ephesians to remember. Why do you think he tells them to remember? He just got finished reminding them that they were dead in sins. So like you said in the last episode, it would be you know completely ridiculous to bury yourself again, and especially to bury yourself alive. I mean, it's unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, so God's grace, um, he's basically telling them God's grace saved you because you were Gentiles having no hope because you not only 
did not have Christ, but you also didn't even have God. So you were, you were not part of the nation of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, who was God's chosen people. So starting with Abraham, the promise of rest in the land flowing with milk and honey, which is um, the image of overflowing blessings, was made to him and his descendants. So you Ephesians, Paul's basically saying is you had no access to that, but now you do because of God's grace in Jesus's blood. So remember that. Brittany? Uh, I agree with what Dee said. It's kind of what I was thinking, too. You know, just the fact that they were outside of Christ. They had no hope at one point, And now they've been given um, the same hope that the Jews were allotted in the beginning. Because we know that the Jews were the chosen people of God. And so now these Gentiles who were once uncircumcised... Um, are now joint heirs with Christ, just as the, the Jews are. I mean, the only other thing I, I noticed, you know, with the Gentiles is um, we see a lot of going back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles as far as the division between the both of them. And as you continue to read on, you know, Paul says, remember that at, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. So not only were you separated from God and you had no hope, but you were also separate from the Jews. You had no dealings with them. Right. Um, yeah. So, and we can see that throughout the old Testament as well as the new Testament. And even well up until even after Jesus dies on the cross, you know, there's still some division there, but you know, Paul tells them now we all are joint heirs with Christ. So, yeah. And we're going to get into unity later. So you definitely, we're on the right track. <laughs> there is a lot about unity in this passage. Um, and I really, what I was thinking about was that as humans, we tend to forget a lot and forget often. And we think we know what we're supposed to be doing, but I feel like the scriptures, there's just a lot of reminders. And sometimes we drive away from things so fast to put them in the rearview mirror and put them behind us in such a way that we can kind of forget momentarily where we came from and what we once were. I think that we struggle because of that to extend grace and empathize with others. And we're looking at two separate groups here, the Jews and the Gentiles. It's referred to over and over throughout this passage. And so while we think, like today, I know we, at least in my personal experience, we think we can't relate to people because we're different. It's showing, yes, you can. Remember, you two were once like this. You both, both these groups, mm -hmm. you both had this going on. Well, you know, if you think about God all throughout the Old Testament, he's consistently telling his people, look, I'm the Lord, your God. I took you out of Egypt. Right. I did this. Mm -hmm. I did that for you. Remember that. And he's tell he repeats that over and over yes. and over in almost every book. I thought of that too. Yeah. Like that. Remember the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. It's right. like a specific phrase that each generation they have to, it's like they fall away and then they get brought back mm -hmm. they get complacent we get yes, complacent we, we get do. comfortable in our situation and think oh oh that's right we need to be doing this and you know very true very true moving on uh d will you read verse 15 having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. In verse 15, what does this phrase, one new man in place of the two, mean? Brittany? 
If we look back at verse 14, Paul makes a statement that Christ tore down this dividing wall, uh, the wall that once separated Jews and Greeks. And now that the wall has been torn down, there is no longer two separate groups of individuals, but instead one group of individuals that have been united through the blood of Christ. So the one new man is the body of Christ that has been built and continues to be built by individuals who may see themselves as separates. But when added to the body of Christ, these two individuals now become one. Yeah, I was thinking in Genesis 17, after the covenant was made with Abraham, circumcision was the outward sign of that covenant. So the descendants of Abraham, who were later called Israelites, were circumcised. So these were God's people who later received the law, commonly known as the Ten Commandments. Everyone else was the uncircumcised Gentiles. So these two, quote unquote, sets of people were involved in putting Jesus to death. The circumcised Jews who received the promise of their Messiah in Jesus cried out for his death if you remember in John 19 6 and and 15 um, because of their unbelief the Gentiles who appeared to not want to do this because you remember Pontius Pilate he was like why Mm -hmm. I don't find any wrong with him the Gentiles ultimately performed the execution so by both parties conducting this act it abolished the old law the circumcised Jews and makes peace in himself in one body, his body, killing the hostility of the division with the uncircumcised Gentiles. So if you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talked about the predestined adoption, the spiritual blessings, um, redemption, etc. That was all in him, in Jesus. So chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. So his body, the church, is the one new man full of faithful adopted believers who were once Gentiles having no hope. So basically what you said, but a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you went, yeah, you went more into depth. And uh, I was thinking about uh, when I was reading it and, and the question, I thought about Matthew 19, um, four through six or Matthew chapter 19 yet yeah, verses four through six where he's um, Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce and you know um, speaking about how like the individuals or the people were created um, in the beginning made male and female and so the uh, man will leave his uh, father and mother to unite with the wife and the two shall become one you know there are no longer two fleshes is that right? Two flesh. flesh. Oh, yeah. here I go again, making up my own words. There are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. And I thought about that with with the church. You know, we are all separate individuals, but when we are baptized and added to the Lord's church, we are now all these separate individuals that make up this one body. You know, and I just thought about. Um, about the whole marriage aspect of it. And D, which verse did you mention about me, um, about Christ being the head? Oh, in chapter one, verses 22 and 23. Yeah. And so also I was looking at um, 
Ephesians 5 verses 22 down to the end of the chapter, um, it talks about wives and husbands and wives submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so, again, like he's talking about submission between husbands and wives, and he's comparing that to as the body of Christ as well. You know, just as Christ is the head of the church, the church is his bride, you submit. And it's the same thing when we look back at Matthew 19, only we're talking about the, the church. We've been added to the body of Christ. The church is Christ's bride. And so now we are no longer two different individuals, but one flesh. So, right. And I was also in Genesis when I was answering this question. When Jesus died, his sacrifice fulfilled two promises. You go back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So it you know, fulfilled that. But also the second one is the seed promise with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Christ's blood fulfilled not only the covenant with the Jews, but it extended to the Gentiles. Um, and I couldn't figure out a way that I wanted to phrase it, but I kind of thought of it as like a phase because it was all in the plan. This wasn't a backup. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. But like his blood kind of activated that second phase of the plan where before the Jews were the chosen people. And now with his blood, that seed promised to Abraham that in him all the families or nations of the earth, earth would be blessed. It extended to the Gentiles, which like you said, is everybody else. And I thought of Galatians 3 verses 26 through 28 which says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And that last verse, 29, says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I just love, I don't know, I just love how different passages just click together Uh so Mm -hmm. perfectly. It's so beautiful. Perfect harmony. All right, so I think we covered that very well. You guys had a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so looking at verse 17 through 19, how do you think this is significant for us today? And if someone wants to read that. I'll read it. Okay. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For though, well, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Well, um, so she said, how is this significant for us today? Um, Well, I think the, the best way to do it is probably to break down the verse first. So beginning with verse 17, um, and he came and preached peace to you who were far, who were far off and peace to those who were near. Um, Jesus came to preach and teach the good news to the Jews and Gentiles. And today, um, the Jews and Gentiles would be those who are saved and those who are lost, right? So we don't really use the term Jews and Gentiles anymore. You have saved and lost or saved and non-saved, however you would prefer to, to put that. 
So the believers in Acts 4.32 are recorded as having everything in common. So not only did they share the love of Christ with each other, but with others as well. If you continue to read down the verse 34, it says that not a single person among them was needy. Uh, They all pitched in to help and to do the work of the Lord. And, you know, going back to verses 17 through 19, they're significant to us today because they teach us how to treat others who look and sound different than us. And most importantly, it teaches us what heaven is going to look like with all the different races and faces and how to model the spirit of Christ. That's good. It's kind of like what I was going to say. Um, We, as in the people after the resurrection of Christ are, are afar off. If you remember in Acts 2, 38 and 39, uh, Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord God, Lord, our God will call. Um, so That's the afar off part I got. Um, Continuing in verse 18, you know, when it says, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. So in John 14, 26, Jesus told his apostles the night before he died. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So through our obedience to the gospel, the Acts 2.38, we, in verse 19, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So I think that is the significance for us today. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Um, And really, I just love and I said, we'll eventually get to like an actual question about unity. But I feel like this passage just, like I said, the contrast between divided and unified. Mm -hmm. That's what we're seeing here throughout the whole passage. I feel like every question we're going to hit on it, which is great because it's a beautiful thing and it's something that we need, but it is a beautiful thing. And Christ brings unity and he brings true unity. He preached peace to both groups, not just one. Why? Because there was no peace between the two groups. Right. Like he, he is that connector that binding agent and these were literally the first group the first generation of christians they didn't have someone to observe like we do and so like when i first approached this i was like man like i know everything applies to us in a certain way but culturally speaking and just because in my mind those two groups those were who who were far off were the gentiles Mm -hmm. and those who were near were the jews and that's not what the world looks like today you know Mm -hmm. it's not that the we're coming out of something where the Jews are the chosen people, like the Christians in our time and age are the chosen people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my mind, I was ra- trying to wrap it around, like, how does this apply to us mm-hmm. in a different context, you know? Because um, to them, that peace is a pretty new and shocking thing. And to us, that's the way it's been. that Or that's the way it should be, I'll say, right, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I loved what y'all said. I mean, I think y'all hit it right on the head. All right, moving on to 20. Verse 20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So let's discuss Jesus as the cornerstone. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I don't have anything fancy for that. You know, when I think about a cornerstone, I think about just that, you know, like uh, the the corner of a building, which would ultimately fall if that one piece of corner foundation was out of place. Um, so it would be like Jenga. You know, you have all these blocks. Everything is set up perfectly when you first do it. And now you're trying to pull out these pieces, you know. And you mo- most of the times you realize it's like you got to pull it right, just right. But sometimes when you pull that little corner block, everything goes tumbling. You know, the, the entire the entire jingle block or in this in this particular text, the entire building would crumble all because one little corner of the building is out of place. And so Jesus is that cornerstone for us. Without him, we would come crashing down every time. Um, although the foundation may look good. From afar, as you get closer, you know, you might notice that the foundation is about to um, crumble. In Isaiah 20, 28, 16, um, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Um So I just when I read that text, I thought about, well, you know, Zion um, could either be Jerusalem or it could be the people of God in this particular text. And then uh, honestly, both of them work in context and the stone is Jesus. So not only was Jesus a costly stone, but he was also the only stone that could be firmly placed to make our salvation sure. He would not waver because he is God. And it was for this very reason he came to um, earth, you know? So that's what I think about when I hear Jesus as a cornerstone. <laughs> and um, I'm, I've got the new King James and it says chief cornerstone. When I read it, I thought, I, I remember reading that somewhere. Where did I read it? And so I was looking around and in Acts 4, 10 through 12, um, after Peter healed the lame beggar, he said, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by my, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But then I started to think after I read that, I was like, a stone, a stone. I remembered a stone in the Old Testament because, and I was like, where did I read it? It was Daniel, Daniel 2. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this great splendid image, this statue, I guess, that had body parts made of different materials. So like the head was made of gold, the chest and the arms was were silver, the belly and the thighs were bronze, legs of iron, and the feet were part iron and part clay. Then in his dream, a stone struck the image on the feet of iron and clay, and the whole image was crushed and destroyed. These body parts, as Daniel um, interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar from God, represented the kingdoms that were to follow the Babylonian Empire. So the feet were the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. That's why it wasn't as strong mixed with stone and clay, or iron and clay. 
And the stone that struck the image became a mountain that filled the earth. So Daniel 2.44, bear with me now, bear with me, <laughs> follow me. Um, Daniel 2.44 says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So Jesus is that stone, like you said, Brittany. He's the rock, like First Corinthians ten four says. Um, so that is Jesus as the stone, the chief cornerstone. <laughs> right, and kind of building off of what you all said, the cornerstone is that stone that's laid on the foundation of a building, and it marks the geographical location because it orients the direction of that building in a specific direction. It's also the rock that Brittany mentioned, upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. It ensures stability. And oftentimes, from what I found in research, religious slogans or the name of the architect or the king that was responsible for building that specific structure and then the date of construction were inscribed on the stone. And so if we look at that, I put kind of a list. Jesus orients the church in a specific direction in the way it should face. He carries the weight of the church the stability of the church comes from Jesus. He is the architect of the church, and he is the king responsible for the construction of the church. And then, of course, if we put a date inscribed on the stone, it would be the date of Pentecost in about A.D. 33. And any church that doesn't have that inscribed on their cornerstone would be a different church. It wouldn't be Christ church. I like that. Yeah. I do, too. Yeah. Thank you, IVP commentary. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, I'm sure y'all have seen it. It's got all the cultural background for the different verses. It, of course, that's the New Testament IVP. And some of that was from a website that I found online, but I wish I'd written it down so I could reference them. Mm. That's yeah. really good, though. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I don't think I've really thought about it like, like that. And, I mean, all the... the geography behind the point of a cornerstone and stuff i'm just simply and it's what the building needs to stand <laughs> you know and but here the, i am talking about a great image King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> oh no no it's all of. good it's all good every all that was relevant also in verse 20 it mentions that the apostles and prophets are a foundation how so d how so <laughs> <laughs> well the foundation is what the prophets foretold about the Messiah and the apostles confirming the prophets' prophecies. You know, like Such as Daniel with Peter is one example that I just referenced. Um, Isaiah's book with the Gospels. Joel um, with the 12 apostles on the day of Pentecost. So, I mean, there's perfect harmony and unity. So the foundation, like you said earlier, um, this wasn't a backup plan. This was something that came into existence before the foundation of the earth, which we discussed in a previous episode. So this was not, a, um, oh, yeah, look, let's do it this way type mm -hmm. of thing. It's always been. So the foundation was laid early on, and the apostles just confirmed all of that in their teaching of Christ. Yeah, that's pretty much what I I had to, you know, and I was thinking, well, first, what is the foundation? I would say that Jesus Christ is the foundation, but 
it was the job of the prophets and apostles to sustain that foundation, so to speak, uh, by preaching about the Savior who would come and then preaching about the Savior who did come to save the world. So like you mentioned about in the Old Testament about the prophets who preached about Jesus to come and then when you get to the New Testament and you know, he did come and then it was the job of the apostles in the New Testament to continue to keep those teaching up. So like you said, the foundation was built from the beginning. It was always there. God had always had a planned plan, but it was up to the to the prophets and the apostles to make sure that foundation was sustained. And like for us today, we're still part of that foundation as well. It's still our job to make sure that foundation is sustained as well. When we go into all the world, Matthew 28, to preach and to teach uh, people about Jesus Christ. So, Well, kind of what you were saying about building the, the way it was built, um, G- Jesus being a cornerstone. We well, you know if you think about it, when you build in a house, you, the, you laid a foundation first. Mm-hmm. So the structure is firm, it can stand on. So then you put this chief cornerstone there. And it's being built when he adds more Christians to it to have this dwelling place for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The church. I like it. And I thought kind of what Brittany was saying, you know, the prophets provided glimpses of who Jesus was going to be. They paved the way to him. You know, we say that the Old Testament points to Jesus and then um, the, New Testament. the New Testament is pointing, you know, back to him but the that first part of it 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 is his life you know and so he's kind of sandwiched in there but then for all eternity we're pointing back right yeah to that point Mm -hmm. and it's so obviously it's so important I feel like that's really ridiculous to say it goes without (laughs) saying that that's really important but you know you look in first Peter 1 10 through 12 and it talks about the prophets um and kind of their role in all of that and then the apostles were integral in establishing the church. They helped build the church on Christ's teaching. They had unique gifts and abilities and experiences that could bring others to Christ. And so I think all everything that y'all said was just, once again, spot on. So let's finally, I keep alluding to it, let's get to the prevalence and the presence of unity in this passage because I feel like that's what it's boiling down to, especially after hearing your comments. Of course, we all study this separately, and then we come together and discuss it. Right. And so it feels like the key word this week is unity. Yeah. So let's discuss it. I mean, throughout Ephesians 2, verse, I mean, these last 12 verses, unity is blatant. Like, definitely, yes. I'm not, I don't mean this in a rude way, but I'm just like, if you don't see unity, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure what you're reading. Like, you know, like you can't help but notice it, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, every bit of this passage is unified. It has one message. You know, all things, so Jews and Gentiles, the old covenant of a promised land and the, a new covenant of a promised heavenly land, um, the prophets' prophecies and the apostles' confirmation and everything else we discussed is made one in Christ's body. Right, and I think it really shines out in verse 14. Uh, Brittany read that for us earlier where it said, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Really, this whole section is about unity being found in Christ. We can go back to that passage that I mentioned in Galatians 3 and look at um, how our differences don't define us. That's what it's saying. You were, you know, there is no longer 
Jew nor Greek, male mm-hmm. nor female, slave nor free. So we don't let our differences define us. We let that unity in Christ define us now. Mm-hmm. And just as Christ's blood washing over me makes it so that God only sees me as redeemed, Christ's blood washing over the saints should make it so that when I look at them, I don't see the differences. I only see a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And Christ's efforts made for unity when he did everything he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do my efforts as a Christian promote that and strengthen that? Or are they demeaning it and weakening that unity? And that's something like I need to search in myself and I feel like all of us need to look at ourselves and do my efforts match Christ's and intensity. They never will. I mean, we're not going to die on a cross and provide salvation for everybody. Right. That was done once and never has to be done again. You know, Hebrews nine, but am I willing to give all that I have to promote that unity? Um, while studying, I just kind of started thinking to myself, you know, um, I don't think our differences are embraced throughout the church. We all know we look different because God created us all to look different, but those differences have stories behind them. Um, I think we could and should learn more about the stories that are behind our differences. And I mean, this is just something I think everybody knows, but our society has become more disconnected because of social media. And it's sad, you know, you, you may have 300 friends on Instagram and Facebook, but how many of those friends do you really know? What do you really know about them other than what they post or share, you know, and that's not sending a shot. I'm talking to myself too, because although I don't have Facebook, I do have Instagram, you know, and I'm not trying to paint myself in a good light, like, because I use my Instagram kind of like I use Pinterest, you know, I'd be looking <laughs> for stuff, you know. <laughs> so it there there is a little difference. But still, I have people on there that I follow and people that follow me and I hardly ever go to their pages. I don't know anything about them other than what they share. And that's just a moment. Yeah. That's just a still picture in time of who they are or what they were doing. You don't know what they do on a on a daily basis. And so... In Acts 2, 42, um, verses, well, Acts 2, 42 through verse 47, we read about the Christians not only devoting themselves to good study habits, but enjoying being around one another. And again, not calling anybody out, I'm going to specifically speak for Brittany. And I think we can all relate to this to some certain extent. You know, you have people throughout the church, you know, and we know that we're all one in Christ. But if we're going to be honest, we know there are just some of those personalities that we're just not going to gel with sometimes like that. And um, again, it's one of those things where it's like, why aren't we gelling with that personality? Like if the, if the person isn't being a kind person, that's one thing, but have we taken it upon ourselves to try and get to know that person, to try and get to know who they are. And when you look at the believers in Acts 2.42, you know, and the Bible says things like they had all things in common. Mm-hmm. They were in the temple daily together. They were consistently in each other's houses, breaking bread. And it's just like, mm-hmm. initially, like the carnal side of you is thinking, well, at least for Brittany, it's like, y'all spend all that time together. <laughs> but then it's just like, the spiritual side is like, why aren't you spending all that time together? You know, why aren't right. you trying to get to know one another? And it just kind of made me, it didn't, it didn't make me sad, but it did kind of make me a little, a little emotional. You know, 
we only know so much about people. Number one is what they choose to share, but also what we choose to, I guess, want to know, so to speak. Like we're only going to go so far with them, but these, these believers in Acts 2.42, like they did everything together, eating and praying and studying. And it's just like, we got to model that, you know, we, we really do. And so, you know, they desired to be with one another and, you know, I'm sure that they were all different, but it didn't matter because they had Christ in common. And Psalm 133.1 says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now that's the ESV version. But when I was looking up the verse, I looked in the NIV as well. And I, I loved how the NIV said it. And it says, when when God's people live together in unity. And I just was like, you know, if you take out the other stuff and you just say, behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I was just like, that's, that's beautiful. That's great. You know? I mean, they were even, they, they spent so much time with each other and loved each other so much that they were selling their own belongings to, to help others. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, and that's sad to say, but I can't imagine selling all my goods to help Brittany or you. Not that I don't love y'all, because I love y'all to death, but that's (laughs) that's hard for me to grasp, because we don't do things like that today, and and we should, because this is just a tiny glimpse of what heaven will be like, the time we spend with one another, and helping each other, and being with each other, and so... Yeah. And you hear preachers say it all the time in their lessons. If you can't stomach one another on earth and uh, um, for a couple hours in services on Sunday and Wednesday, how y'all plan to spend all eternity with each other? You know, so and I'm not saying, you know, there are people that have got their quirks and different things about them. But I think ultimately, you know, we have to try and, and bridge some gap, at least meet halfway you know now if they don't come back the other half then that's on them they have to take that up with with God on the day of judgment but individually speaking can you say that you've done all that you can to really try and live in peace and harmony with your brethren or are you just kind of like eh they don't come my way I ain't going their way it's all good you know like are we trying to cross the bridge even just a little you know yeah So what do you think is the most significant application of this passage personally for yourself? Mm. Oh, personally? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say it's remembering the significant measures by which Christ reconciled the enmity between man and God, you know, through his blood going on the cross. I mean, the significance is in remembering if God had to continually remind his people of what he has done for them I mean I'm I'm no different today I need to remember just as much for me I would say and I'm not going to get all political that is not what we are doing here and that is not Brittany so that is not what we're going to do but I will say this one thing that was significant to me in in the passage not only was the unity but the equality that we have in Christ. Um, our world today is so divided, yeah. you know, and 
even though we're not of the world, we still live in the world. We still are a part of society, of our community. And so to me, there are things out there that um, affect me in, in different ways that they might that they may or may not affect somebody else. And one of the biggest things that I've seen here that has just really made me think, and for me, what I really need to apply and take from this is like, Brittany, the world is the world. And all you can do is do what God has told you to do. And that is to preach and to teach other people, well, teach, I'm not a preacher, <laughs> so teach, um, teach other people the gospel and be a good example. Let your light shine so that people can see your good works, but glorify God. And part of that is not letting what happens out in the world, the equality issues, all the different things that are going on. You cannot let those things affect you out in the world and think that you can bring it into the church as well, because you can't. What's going on in the world has nothing to do with this body of believers. Um, if anything, if anything in the world that is happening as Christians, we need to be coming together and say, Hey, what can we do to allow others in the world to see Christ? But all the political issues, economic issues, social issues, whatever those are, I should not be bringing those things into the church. And sad to say, sometimes I do because they, they affect me more than I should let them. But the biggest thing I need to remember is even though parts of the world may not see you as equal, parts of the world may see you as being different and want no dealings with you. That's not what the church is about. In the church, everybody is on the same playing field. No, God doesn't show favorites. When you're added to his body, he sees D. He sees Stephanie. He sees Brittany. He doesn't see all of our differences. He doesn't see what part of the world we came from or our ethnic backgrounds. Like none of that matters to him. What really matters is your heart and doing his will. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I took from it personally. I like it. For me, I mean, there's so much to draw from, but I just think that statement that Jesus is our peace. You know, am I letting that peace reign in my life? Am I letting it rule me? Or am I letting the chaos out in the world that you just referred to, mm -hmm. you know, affect me in such a way that, you know, there's a difference in bringing it into the church and saying I need prayers because this is affecting me and bringing it into the church right. and laying it down and being like, here we go. Yeah. yeah. Have at it. Let's all partake in mm -hmm. this. You know, mm -hmm. there's a big difference there. Um, all right. So wrapping it up, where do we see the love of Christ in this passage? I'll go first just because <laughs> you asked the question, like, um, what do you think is the most significant, significant application of the passage? But then... I realized that when I started thinking about where do I see the love of Christ, it kind of sounds the same. <laughs> the same. So I'm going to say it. So if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I'm just out of the way. In these last 12 verses, unity is is blatant. And so that's really what I took from it. And um, anybody who knows me knows that unity and equality are very big things to me. They, they, they do mean a lot to me. And I also know so much that they mean a lot to me that I know they're parts of my life that I really need to work on that. Um, so we're not going to hash any more of that. But where do I see the love of Christ? I would say in the unity that we have in Christ. You know, God knew that our differences would separate us. So he sends one man, one man who on the physical, who on the physical level was a plain Jane, 
so to speak, Mm -hmm. to save the entire world from their sins, who was killed for being different. And after his death, burial and resurrection says there is no more separation in Christ. Um, So everyone has access to God, the father through him, through Jesus, your cultural background, your ethnicity, your physical attributes have nothing to do with your salvation. It's all about following Christ and doing the will of the father. So that's where I see the love of Christ. Um, we talked about, or I talked about earlier, um, about the, when man cried out, crucify him, he led them. You know, he said in Matthew twenty six fifty three that he could pray for 12 legions of angels to come to him, but he didn't. In verse 15, he was the personification of man's enmity towards God. He put to death that enmity and the hostility of sins and reconciled, which means made peace. He reconciled man to God in his resurrection and being seated at the right hand of God. So in all this, he personified God's love towards man. So I think that's where I see it is when he put to death our, our, you know, hatred. Mm-hmm. By in in our sins, because when we sin, we're basically saying, "I don't love you. I hate you. I I'd rather I love myself more." Right. So for him to not call the twelve legions of angels and not go, you know, decide to go ahead and go through with the cross, that's that's where I see his love. All right, and I see it when we're, when we're talking about the cornerstone and that idea that he carries the weight of the church. That is such a heavy burden, you know, and I think about there, there are other verses talking about how he upholds the world. Like he holds everything by his power and the fact that he just does it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he does that for us that it's of no benefit to him. It's all for us. And I can't imagine anything that would make me feel more loved than that. He carries my burdens, everybody's burdens, but my burdens go into that pile too. Yeah. And that I don't have to carry them. Well, that was a great discussion today on unity. And we wrapped up chapter two. And we're just so thankful that you joined us today on To Know the Love of Christ. We hope and we pray that you'll join us again. And that in your own lives, that you will seek to know the love of Christ.